Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel and at getearfuel.com. It is so great to be back with all of you after our brief hiatus. Really, cannot tell you how glad I'm to be back, and we have a lot of cool stuff in the coming episodes. Now, over the past couple weeks, a ton of great albums dropped, so let's go take a look at a few of them. Very quickly, I want to mention that Primus released a new album at the end of September, and it's called The Desaturating Seven. This record is significant as it's the first to have that classic Primus lineup since 1995, with drummer Tim Herb Alexander rejoining Les and Lur for this concept record. The album is a concept based on a rather dark children's book. It's called The Rainbow Goblins. In short, it's a bunch of goblins who steal color from everything in the world, and Les Claypool used to read it to his kids, which, once you read this book, it makes perfect sense. Anyway, the album is dark and moody, and it meanders in all the ways that make Primus great. But don't think that this is a soundtrack. It's, it's more of a musical retelling. If you're a fan of Primus or somewhat creepy kind of evil music, you're going to dig this one. If you're not familiar with Primus, go grab Frizzle Fry and kind of work your way towards this one. Don't get me wrong. It is a fun album, but it does end up leaning a bit more to the side of very cool novelty than a meaningful addition to the band's catalog. It is well worth the time, though. Miley Cyrus also released a new record, and yes, we are going to talk about it a bit. Remember, there is great music to be found in every genre, and that includes pop music. The record, which is called Younger Now, is decent. The first side is far stronger than the second, as it's a bit of a scattered affair. I actually think Miley got some bad advice during the creative process, as she's already proven that she understands song construction and flow, and it just didn't happen this time around. There are a few very good songs, and I think she actually played it a bit too safe on this record. I mean, when Bangers was released back in 2013, I wrote a piece for Death and Taxes magazine that basically laid out what this, her next album, would be and what it would sound like, what it would feel like, and I was right. She continues to follow the pop star formula that we've been seeing for decades. This is not a surprise, much like her last record was not a surprise, because this one had to be the return to innocence and kind of balance the album after her crazy freedom, you can't tell me what to do phase. This is just how the industry works. This is not to take anything away from Miley Cyrus. She is very talented and far better a songwriter and music crafter than most of her peers, but I actually expected more from her. She's super creative. She's musically daring most of the time, and this record's just a swing and a miss. So, the album I want to focus on. Marilyn Manson's latest offering, Heaven Upside Down. This is Manson's 10th full-length album, and it's the long-awaited follow-up to 2015's Pale Emperor. I'll be honest, and some of you might hate me for this one, I wasn't a massive fan of that last record. But there was no question, it was the beginning of a return to form, and at the time, it was his strongest effort in a decade, and I think some of you might even argue he hasn't put out anything stellar since 2000, and I will listen to that case. But on this one, well... 
Mr. Manson is back for those of us who loved when he was fronting this power-heavy, kick-ass, sometimes kind of metal band and didn't need that overdone stage show to make his songs have impact. Now, that is not a slam on Mechanical Animals or Antichrist Superstar, but for my money, Portrait of an American Family remains my favorite Manson music. This record is pissed off. There is no doubt about it. Along with that usual power of the band's music, there's this bite to these songs. Like, you know what? It's like Manson's got to prove something or he's got a chip on his shoulder this time around. And honestly, it makes these songs all the better. There are killer grooves, which Manson really found a knack for on his last record. And yet the ability to drop fantastic musical and lyrical hooks is completely locked in as well on this record. Throughout the album, they also nail the mood, they nail the atmosphere. Now, now, granted, this is one thing Marilyn Manson does traditionally better than, I mean, really anybody in terms of getting mood and atmosphere going. But this is about as impressive a complete work as he's given us from that perspective, maybe ever. They bring blowout riffs when necessary, but one of the things I love most about Heaven Upside Down is that Manson has finally returned to the idea of only making things super loud when they really need to be. It's another sign for me that that somewhat pointless theatrics have finally been put into the rear view, hopefully, and Marilyn Manson is refocused on being a monstrous rock band again, hopefully. This is the sort of album you're going to want to crank up in your car with the songs Tattooed in Reverse, Kill For Me, and the title track being my personal favorite. And do not miss the track Jesus Crisis, if nothing less than for this refrain. I write songs and fight and I fuck too. If you want to fight, then I'll fight you. If you want to fuck, I will fuck you. Make up your mind, oh, I'll make it up for you. Look, I know it might be a little bit silly and overdone, but that is one of the many reasons I love Marilyn Manson. Know what? I think it's that for whatever reason, Marilyn Manson is hungry again. Instead of like leaning back and putting out another predictable album, it feels and sounds like they're back to square one and somehow got in that mindset of a band with everything to prove. And there's a couple other bands I think they need to tell how they pulled that off Metallica, not to name any other band names. Heaven Upside Down is also about as focused a work lyrically as Marilyn Manson has ever released. You know, it's his usual assault on sex, politics, and the world at large, but, I mean, he's just in top form. It is another level of writing. Above all else, what this record does prove is that in 2017, Marilyn Manson is still about as good as they get in the worlds of both hard rock and heavy metal. This album straddles the line well, and it's, it's really just a satisfying record. I don't know if there's a better way to describe it. It is a satisfying listen. There's no filler, there's no letdowns, and even at a 47-minute runtime, it manages not to overstay its welcome. Don't get me wrong, this is not some instant classic by any means. It's, it's not. But if you're one of those people wondering where the great, dark, hard music has been, it's right here. Heaven Upside Down. Go check it out. Moving on, it's been quite a long time since we dove headfirst into some of the countless rumors and tales that have turned into music myths. And this week, I'm going to uncover the truth behind a few more of my favorites. We're going to cover a joke song turned into a hit. We might delve into a slightly questionable crime. But I think we're going to begin with a truly legendary backstage demand. 
there's a good chance that merely by saying the words backstage demands, there's a few possibilities already kicking around in your mind as yes, we are going to talk about the brown M&M story that has been spoken about and even altered over the decades. You might know this one best from when it was told by the character of Del Preston. You trying to remember who that is? Yeah, he was the roadie in the movie Wayne's World 2. There I am in Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon, at three o'clock in the morning, looking for 1,000 brown M&Ms to fill a brandy glass, or Ozzy wouldn't go on stage that night. So, Jeff Beck pops his head round the door and mentions there's a little sweet shop on the edge of town. So, we go, and it's closed. So there's me and Keith Moon and David Crosby breaking into this little sweet shop, right? Well, instead of a guard dog, they've got this bloody great big Bengal tiger. Well, I managed to take out the tiger with a can of mace. But the shop owner and his son, that's a different story altogether. I had to beat them to death with their own shoes. Nasty business, really. But sure enough, I got the M&Ms and Ozzy went on stage and did a great show. It goes without saying that the whole Bengal tiger and shoe beating thing is a joke, and I'm going to spoil something else here. Ozzy's demand for a thousand brown M&Ms is in itself a joke. But that joke is actually based on cold hard facts about brown M&Ms. And yes, the color here is very important as it was the tip-off that the writers of the film were directly referencing one of the finest tour riders of all time. For those unaware, a tour rider is basically the list of requests and demands that a band sends in advance as part of the agreement for their performance. It's part of the initial contract, and it's open to negotiation between the artist and performer, though it rarely is. Tour riders are where you get classics like Trent Reznor demanding two boxes of cornstarch backstage, or Mary J. Blige demanding a private bathroom with a brand new toilet seat. P.S. She is not the only person who makes that demand. Or maybe even the Rolling Stones demanding a snooker table. It goes far beyond just what they want to eat, and folks like Iggy Pop and the Foo Fighters have turned riding tour riders into an art. A hilarious one at that. Check out thesmokinggun.com for great examples. You know what? Actually, let me read you one of my favorite paragraphs from Iggy Pop's 2006 Rider. It is a classic that's basically someone giving a stream of consciousness commentary as they write. And at one point he says, quote, Some fresh ginger, honey, lemons, and a sharp knife so we can make ginger, honey, and lemon tea. God knows why. And some Chinese gunpowder tea so we can attempt to blow up the dressing room. That's a joke, by the way. Good thing this isn't an airport. The writer goes on for about 20 pages of rambling hilarity, and it does manage to convey everything they need, but it definitely begs the question, why are tour writers so extensive? Beyond just having food in whatever city they're visiting, the other seemingly odd items in the tour writer are usually because, I mean, these are basically people living on the road and they want it to feel a bit like home. That's why you see requests for things like flowers, newspapers, video game systems, and things like that. Promoters deal with tons of these riders each year, and they likely have catering companies ready with the sort of standard food fare for each band, which can really suck if you've been on the road for months and a venue presents you with tons of food you don't want, or in some cases, food you can't eat. 
band members and roadies have food allergies just like anyone else, and there's also a want for variety on the road. Think of the idea of having wedding chicken five nights in a row before you have to go out and play a great show for tens of thousands of fans. Probably not the best or most exciting fuel. So bands like to get specific on things, and that's sort of the origin of brown M&Ms, or actually, you know what? It could be the cause. This is very much a chicken or the egg situation, as the truth behind the story goes all the way back to 1982 and a little band called Van Halen. Yep, the beginning of the brown M&M's myth is the mighty Van Halen, who were already one of the biggest rock bands around, though they were still two years from their legendary 1984 album, but let's be honest, the self-titled debut is still the best Van Halen record, right? Yeah, it is. Anyway, the writer has some moments even before the infamous munchies section, like when they specifically ask for herring and sour cream on one page, and one large tube of KY jelly on the other. Come on, they're one of the biggest bands and David Lee Roth was up front. You gotta love that excess of the 80s rock, right? So on page 40 of the 56-page contract, there is a list titled munchies that has things like potato chips, pretzels, Reese's peanut butter cups, things like that. In that list, it says M&M's, and in all caps and parentheses next to it, it reads, WARNING, ABSOLUTELY NO BROWN ONES. Did one of the band members have some strange phobia or aversion to the color brown? Maybe there was an allergy. Maybe Diamond Dave had some sort of diva moment. I mean, why would you put something so ridiculously specific into a writer for a megator, right? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Attention to detail. Think about it. The second Van Halen walks into their dressing room, they'd instantly know whether or not the promoters and the venue actually read through their contract and cared enough to make them feel comfortable and do it right. That is not to say anyone who didn't do it didn't want the band to feel welcome and put on a great show, or, you know, to get some sort of gotcha moment to the promoters, but it's a small indication of where the band's expectations should be that night. Many bands do things like this nowadays, and I think the Foo Fighters 2000 tour writer sums it up perfectly when it reads, quote, This writer is comprised of things that will make the band rock you like a proverbial hurricane. Please make every effort to provide the following list. Please do not surreptitiously hack through things to save a buck or two. The silly items like gum and candy bars make a difference to these boys that are far from their families and friends. It's not some sort of rock star bullshit moment going on here. This is really trying to make the band a bit more comfortable. That is, until you get to the whole we want cases of Cristal, two boxes of Magnum condoms, and a few hookers territory. That is rock star bullshit. But really, the tour writer is very important, and yes, the tale of the brown M&Ms is completely true thanks to Van Halen. Next up, uh, I don't know, how about Phil Collins? I mean, that's a fun transition, right? It goes without saying that Phil has made some of the most unforgettable songs ever, as whether it's brilliant lyrics, killer riff, or, well, in the case of this song, one of the coolest drum breakdowns ever. Yes, his 1981 hit, In the Air Tonight, and just saying the title of the song brings to mind the myth that has been associated for decades. While the story itself has taken on various details and embellishments over the years, 
The core of the urban legend is that a man was drowning, usually in the ocean, and there was someone close enough to save him, but didn't. Phil himself apparently watched the entire incident transpire, but he was too far away to help, and that's what led to the lyrics and tension found on the song. There is an extended version of the myth, which says Phil Collins saw the man who could have saved the drowning man at a concert and singled him out for his act of cowardice from the stage. This story is about as popular as they get, as Eminem poured more fuel on the It Must Be True fire with his own hit 2000 song, Stan. Hey Slim, I drank a fifth of vodka, you damn it dry? You know the song by Phil Collins in the air of the night about that guy who could have saved that other guy from drowning but didn't? Then Phil saw it all, then at his show he found him? That's kind of how this is. You could have rescued me from drowning, now it's too late. So did this happen? I mean, Eminem rapped about it. It must be true, right? Anyway, for years, Phil basically avoided the question. So the rumor mill built more. But it's just not true at all. He's discussed it at length on the BBC a number of years ago, and he gave a condensed version of the story last fall on The Tonight Show. Okay. That is the best story I've ever heard about. I know. Unfortunately, none of it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) What? You know... I was just pissed off, you know, I was angry. Um, At what? Well, you know, you you go through a divorce and, uh, you know, sometimes it's like, please, I love you, I love you, love you, don't hang up, don't hang up. And then it's like, well, you. Yeah. And then, of course, that's when a song like In the Air Tonight comes out. There's obviously a lot of anger in there. While I might give a pass to people who thought the core of the story was true, the whole singling a guy out at the concert, I mean, it's almost impossible to believe. If you've ever stood on a stage before, you know that the lights are basically blinding in terms of seeing the audience. And the probability of it happening is just, I mean, it's its very improbable. Along with that, let's be honest here. Who would watch what is essentially a murder by omission go down and not report it to the police? I mean, you think Phil Collins was thinking, well, I just saw something completely horrific and a man died, but instead of the cops, I'm just going to write a complexly veiled lyric about it. It should come as no surprise that this story is completely myth, as on many levels, it just doesn't make sense. Is it a cool story? I mean, I suppose. But is it true? Nope. The last myth I want to talk about is whether or not there's any truth to the claim that one of the biggest hits of 1986, which is also one of the most iconic hip-hop anthems ever, was actually written as a complete joke. Go grab your hairspray and spandex, and we're going to get into that mid-80s mindset. Songs like Twisted Sisters, I Want to Rock, Motley Crue's cover of Smokin' in the Boys' Room, and yes, that's a cover song, and Poison's Talk Dirty to Me were all over the airwaves, and that whole culture of excess we talked about earlier is in full swing. Granted, Prince's Let's Go Crazy, Falco's Rock Me on Medeus, and Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone were also hitting big, but that's beside the point and just an excuse for me to make an Archer reference in this episode. Anyway, so much of what the music industry was presenting at the time basically said to guys, go drink all you want because that's what being cool and hip is all about. And oh, did people buy into this idea big time. But whenever the culture goes in any given direction, choose it doesn't matter, there are always going to be artists looking to critique, if not spoof those ideals. And that's exactly what went on with one of the most famous songs of 1986. It's a song that has become outright anthemic, like I said, and the irony of what it's really meant to be might be on par with how politicians use Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. 
The song is one I'm sure you've quoted more times than you'd like to admit in life, and it may genuinely surprise you to know that, yes, this song was written to completely mock the entire drunk meatheads at the party culture, and we all know that guy at the party. But the party, it's, you know, the party, it's it's a right, and we should fight for it. You gotta fight for your right to party! Yeah, I kid you not. The Beastie Boys' iconic song, Fight for Your Right to Party, is 100% a parody and a send-up, and that unforgettable video was made to reinforce just how ridiculous the entire idea was. That is to say, they were going completely overboard with everything at every turn in an attempt to make it very clear that the song was mocking the culture. Sadly, the true intentions of the song were lost on pretty much everyone in the universe. And in the late 80s, Mike D said, quote, The only thing that upsets me is that we might have reinforced certain values of some people in our audience when our own values were actually totally different. There were tons of guys singing along to fight for your right who were oblivious to the fact that it was a total goof on them. More to the point, about halfway through their 1987 tour, the Beastie Boys stopped performing the song live and it very, very rarely made a live appearance after that. If you want to see something cool, quick side note here, back in 2011, the late Adam Yock, a.k.a. MCA, made a half-hour short film called Fight for Your Right Revisited, which features the likes of Will Ferrell, Rashida Jones, Jack Black, Danny McBride, and just tons of other celebrities remaking the video and delivering a ridiculous script all in the spirit of the original video. It's on the Beastie Boys official YouTube channel, and I highly recommend you check it out. But in the end, yeah, Fight for Your Right to Party was written as a total joke to poke fun at the culture of excess that was dominating the music scene at the time. All across the history of every genre, there are tons of urban legends, many of which have become inseparable from the artist in question. We're going to dig into more in the future, and if there are any particular myths you want me to discuss, you can always hit me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at the Daily Guru. I will say uh, I was going to jump into the myth about Ozzy peeing on the Alamo today, but the reason that I was on a six-week hiatus is crying uncontrollably in the other room, so I got to go be dad real quick. We'll get it next time, though. Okay, happy baby. So before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full beginning to end without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days music has been largely relegated to a background task for people. You're at the gym, you're at work, you're driving, you're watching the crazy guy scream on the subway, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, because it is one of my favorite records and I've been spinning it a ton lately, your listening assignment is the Lemonheads' magnificent 1992 album, It's a Shame About Ray. Up front, I will say that along with being one of my all-time favorite records, this album manages to be one of the few that is perfect for literally any mood. Whether you're having the best day ever on a sunny afternoon or you're down in the dumps on a cold, rainy night alone, this album gives you everything you need. 
If you're not familiar with the Lemonheads, they are wonderfully unique in a musical sense, as they manage to occupy that space between 90s alt-rock sound, a tinge of grunge, and a pop feel to their songwriting that you can't ignore. That is to say, every song on It's a Shame About Ray is stunningly addictive, and you can't help but get caught up in it. These songs run the gamut from punk-fueled rockers to alt-country ballads, and even a cover of a Broadway show tune. And with roots in that vibrant early 90s Boston music scene that is so awesome, this is truly a must-own album. There's almost this odd melancholy that runs through the songs that often seems completely juxtaposed to the glowing musical hooks, but I'll be damned if it doesn't work perfectly. And honestly, it's one of the many reasons this record has been in my ears many times, every month, for more than 25 years. The Lemonheads is sort of a solo project in the fact that Evan Dando plays guitar, he sings, and he does nearly all of the songwriting. It's a Shame About Ray is loaded with fantastic riffs, and when you combine the tunes with Evan's voice, it's just a musical bliss unlike any other. His voice is pure and beautiful, and he holds nothing back in terms of letting the emotions of his words take full form. There's basically no studio polish on his singing, and it's that untouched, straightforward delivery that becomes instantly captivating. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his bass player on this album, as it was a then-up-and-coming performer named Juliana Hatfield. Yes, that Juliana Hatfield. The two of them have played in a number of musical configurations together over the years, and they are a super cool musical pairing. From the sing-along jangle of confetti to the distinctive touch of grime guitar on Rudderless to the head-bobbing ceiling fan in my spoon to the absolutely perfect, it is a perfect song, bit part, there is not a bad moment to be found, and every song becomes a personal favorite for a different reason— Trust me on this one, you are going to be singing along with every track in no time. Really, and I I am not being hyperbolic here. I would be hard-pressed to find any album from the 90s that packs as much sonic beauty, color, and I know I keep saying it, perfection into 30 minutes than you'll find here. It's truly a special recording. As far as I'm concerned, It's a Shame About Ray is the ideal definition of alternative rock as it hits flawlessly at every turn. This one must, 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 must be in your collection. And if somehow you don't already spin this a few times a month, you need to change that right now. Thank me later. So that is all for this week. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores, along with at GetEarFuel.com. And you can find me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. And that is your weekly Ear Fuel. Share and enjoy. (laughs) 